0: Uh, Now, we started a a series a few weeks ago, Uh, Brandon spoke last week, kind of looking at uh, some different habits, some rhythms that we see in the life of Jesus, and uh, tonight I want to pick up on one of those rhythms that isn't one that is observable, like, doesn't jump off the page where you're like, yeah, that's it, but when you begin to look at the rhythms of how Jesus lived, you see this as something, this is very evident within his life, and I want to get at it. Uh, and looking into this idea of some different things that we face as we drive around. Now, you remember this series. We talked about this idea that living life with God is not about trying harder. It's about maybe training better. And we said this is about beginning to understand. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he said. I want you to learn from me. And it's not just learning what he had to say about things and just studying the sermons and parables that he told, but maybe it's also learning and watching and observing how he actually lived and some rhythms that he had. We looked at prayer. We're going to look at that again. We looked at this idea of maybe slowing down, living the unhurried life. We looked at this idea of reflecting on Scripture last week. If you missed that, it was so good. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. and You can catch it online. You can watch it. Or you can download it as a podcast and get all that. Uh, the bottom line for this series, here's what we've said. Practicing the life of my Savior with my Savior helps me live more like my Savior. And I don't know anyone who's an interested or even fully devoted follower of Christ who doesn't want to live a little bit more like Jesus. He seemed to have gotten several things right. And he seemed to live the best possible life. And so this uh, practice I want us to look into tonight is one that I'm going to call kind of the practice of yielding. Maybe you might be familiar with a different word of, like, submission. You're like, whoa, submission. I don't like that word. Um, the practice of yielding is something that I think is is really key when you want to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I understand that there, there may be some of you here who are coming back to church, or you're, you know, someone invited you and they bribed you with dinner, and that's awesome. And I hope you have a great dinner. And I hope that tonight, maybe you just get to see a little bit behind that curtain and recognize that this is a place where you can investigate the spiritual life and investigate Jesus and understand maybe a little bit more about who he is, what he had to say about life, because many of us have become convinced he really is God's son who came, who lived, who died, and who rose again, that we might have life with God. Now, that may not be where you're at right now, and that's okay. But I think if you're honest with yourself, you'd look at the life of Jesus and you'd compare him to many other people, world leaders, and you'd say there's something about Jesus that he just seemed to live right. And it seems like if I just experienced a little bit more of that, that maybe my life would be better. And and I would just suggest to you, why not give it a shot? Why not just investigate a little bit more of how he lived? And you'll see this modeled in him. How many of you drive a vehicle? Okay, good. We're still playing along. Perfect. Uh, So you drove a vehicle here. There are some road signs that you will encounter as you go throughout. And I think we have the first one here, Jacob. So this stop sign. How many of you love the stop sign, right? Uh, No, not many people love the stop sign uh, because it it, it, it impedes your progress. See, no one gets in a car and says, well, I'm just going to take a Sunday drive. Even people on Sunday, they don't. They have a plan, they have a purpose, they have a mission that they're on of where they need to go. And so stop signs, though they're annoying at times, slow you down, sometimes protect you. They're good, healthy things, and we should all obey them. So you see stop signs. What's the next one? Detour sign. Oh, don't you love that, right? When especially on the freeway, especially if you're in a new town and you're like, I'm just got the GPS, and so I don't want to detour. But we can navigate them because we see these signs around. Okay, next one. School crossing, you should slow down in a school crossing zone, okay? Just reminding you, I once got a ticket for doing a U-turn in a school zone. Apparently, that's a no-no. So, don't do that. There you go. I just saved you 50 bucks. Um, Now, there's another sign that I I found, just some weird signs. I just thought, oh, you really can't see that one very well. It says, uh, good luck, underneath it. And that one is, you're never going to make the work on time. Ha, ha, ha. (laughs) It's just... um, I just thought those were funny, but the next sign is this yield sign, and this is the one that I think is the most frustrating road sign that exists, and here's why. It's real simple. You have a mission. You have a plan of where you're going. The problem is when you pull up to one of these signs, you actually have to take second chair to other people's missions and plans of where they're going. Now, when you are merging onto the freeway, or you have a yield sign of you're merging onto a main road, and you come before this, you have two courses of action. Well, I guess three. One, you could stop your car, get out, and just leave it there. Most people won't do that. The second one is you can either step on the gas and just jam your way into whatever flow of traffic is there, and just hope that people will stop and let you in, right? Or third, you can do kind of what the sign is saying, yield your right your right-of-way, to the people that have the main flow of traffic and let them go first, therefore promoting them, letting them have their way above yours. That's annoying, isn't it? Is anyone else annoyed by this? And, And here's what you begin to see when you study traffic patterns, is that this is a really difficult thing to do. Now, take that same principle transferred over to our spiritual lives, And you're going to find the same thing. It's a really difficult thing to do, to actually yield my desire. See, we live in a country that is all about number one, right? You finish first. That's the goal and everything. In fact, most athletes have a saying that second place is just first loser, right? Right? And so we have this goal in our country that you have to be first. You have to win. And we have this drive, this internal drive within us to say, it has to be my way. In fact, you go throughout your whole entire existence, most of your Mondays, I bet as you're driving to Starbucks to get the caffeine that you want, to give you the little pick-me-up, is you have a mission of how to get there. And when people impede your progress to get the latte that you need, you're frustrated by that. Or if you face one of those other signs, of the detour sign, or you come up to the idea that you have to yield the way you wanted things to unfold, it's very difficult to actually swallow that and to say, I'm, I'm going to yield that. We like to push ourselves. We live in a culture that is customizable everything, right? And if I live in a customizable everything culture, then it really should all be about me. I can customize everything, so therefore it should be about me. In our selfie stick society, we have said it should be about me. And everything in our mind and everything in how we conduct life begins always to have that bent. And Jesus pushes against that. And that can be maybe a low-term frustration, sometimes can even be a high-level frustration we can begin to say, you know, I want to have things my way. That submission is a really difficult thing to, to take on, to tackle, to understand, to begin to see, because most of us see submission as what conjures up images of, well, I don't want to be just a doormat that people walk over me and just take advantage of me and do all these things, right? We don't want that. We want to push against that. We want to have control. We don't want to give control to anyone else. We don't want to, to take a second chair. When I was in high school, Uh, or junior high, high school, I played the saxophone. I have a little bit of rhythm. Um, And uh, I always wanted to be first chair because that just sounded cool because you'd be like the top person. And I was always second chair, which was really annoying uh, because the other guy would just elbow you. And uh, that's the way it was. But everything in me wanted to be first chair, even though I didn't really care about playing sax. I liked baseball better. And that's what I cared about the most. But I had this drive in me to want to be first And this perception uh, of submission is something in our culture that we see as a very bad thing. And I want you to understand that in the Bible, when it talks about this idea of submission, it talks about this, this concept of yielding to Jesus, yielding your life to God, it sees it in a much, much different light. It's not a second class thing, it's not a second chair type thing, it's actually the best way to possibly live. I do a ton of weddings. And often, uh, I'll read from Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about wives and husbands. And I'll read that passage, and it starts with, in verse 22, chapter 5, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, there are many preachers who have abused that verse because they have not read the verse right before it, which is, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's this idea, this concept the Bible is saying is that we are to mutually submit one to another. And we are to, yes, there might be a lead in a family, but it's this mutual submission where I'm seeking your best and you're seeking my best and it works together hand in hand. And see, submission is not one is better and one is less and therefore I'm going to squish you and hold you down and not I'm going to keep you back from becoming who you were meant to be. You will always be second chair, always second place, always further away. In our culture, that's kind of what we see submission as. What we see yielding as is, well, I guess you're better than me, and I'm way back here. But the Bible always paints this picture of submission being a beautiful thing. In fact, we see it on display in the second person of the Trinity, in Jesus himself as he comes. And in John 14, if you have your Bibles, you can go to John 14, or you can follow along on Version. Got all the sermon notes in there. In John 14... Jesus begins to give a little bit of a taste to what's going on. And uh, in John 14, he's talking uh, to these disciples and they are kind of troubled because things are moving toward Jerusalem, moving toward this climax of the crucifixion. They don't quite see that yet. They begin to see that there's some tension happening around them. They don't quite know what's happening. They really thought Jesus was going to overthrow everything take over. uh, He would be first chair. And yet that's not what's happening in this moment, he's going to win, but he's going to win a different way than what they see. And he begins speaking this language of this interplay between God, the father, God, the son and God, the spirit. And we know God is one hero Israel, the Lord, your God is one. There's this simplicity to that yet there's a little bit of complexity to this, too, to understand it's not three gods. It's God, the father, God, the spirit, God, the son. And all three have this interplay, this idea of mutual submission, yielding, pointing, and um, pref- preference to one another. That they're always in this, uh, this interplay of how they love and how they share and how they work together as one. Because they are one. Now, I know that's kind of hard to get your mind around in a lot of ways because we see things so linear and we see things so uh, black and white and segmented. The Trinity is a beautiful concept in Christianity. It is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the planet. And it's a difficult concept to maybe get your mind around, but in simplicity, it's this idea that God is one in three expressions God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and how they work together. Jesus always, in fact, think back to Jesus' baptism, right? God the Father is there. This voice comes from heaven, right? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. I love him, right? Jesus is there, he's in the flesh, he's what people can see, and the Spirit descends him in the form of a dove, right? And so you have all three present here in this moment, this interchange. In fact, scholars kind of talk about this as the uh, inner Trinitarian love, is the phrase they put to it. And it's how the, how the Trinity works together. Here's what Jesus says. As he gives a little bit of a taste, he's talking to Philip. He says, look, Philip's saying, hey, how, just show us the Father. Jesus, just show us the Father. And Jesus' response is, well, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is verse uh, 9. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, is the Father living in me who does and who is doing his work. Believe me in what I am to say, that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe at the evidence of the works themselves. And I love you. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus is putting on display here this inner Trinitarian love of how things work together, mutually submission and yielding, pointing to one another. When you look through the Scriptures, here's what you're going to find. Jesus is always pointing to the Father. You want to know what God's like? He's always pointing to the Father. The Father is always pointing to the Son. The Spirit is always pointing to the Son, and Jesus is always pointing to the Spirit. You'll find that rhythm when you read through the Gospels and you look to recognize it. And what you see on display is something beautiful this mutual submission and yielding, this interplay between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and how they live and how they point to one another, which points to a very simple principle for us. Here's the one-line principle I want us to get kind of broken out in two different ways, and it's this. A yielding life gives priority to God and promotes others above themselves. How you begin to live a yielding life, to be a person that has a yielded heart, is you first are giving priority to God. He matters most. And you are looking to promote others above yourself. Here's how this plays out. You begin to look back to John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was uh, in a lot of ways if you don't know much about the Bible, he was kind of the precursor to the Messiah to Jesus coming and he was used by God to kind of stir up the hearts of the people back in the first century and, and to kind of turn the hearts of the people back in God's direction to kind of say it does matter that we would get right with God, that we would let go of some of the things that, that keep us from living a life that God really desires and, and dreams for us to have and he was going to turn the hearts of the people back and he actually got quite a father following in fact people were coming from all over rich and poor and in every state and economic status of the culture in which he lived people were coming they were being baptized by john as a sign of kind of repentance of saying i'm going to let go of kind of things that are holding me back and i'm choosing to kind of turn my heart my life into the direction of going and pursuing after god and john has this uh, incredible ministry going on then jesus shows up And it's fascinating as Jesus begins to take over in ministry. He begins his ministry life. He only had a ministry life for three years. So it wasn't like he was doing this since he was 16. He wasn't a traveling preacher when he was a teenager. He was just, he had a ministry from 30 to about 33. That's what he had. And so in this moment, he shows up to John. He says, John, I need you to baptize me. John's like, "Ah, you should baptize me. And he says, no, this is right. This is right for us to do. They do that. You can read about Jesus' baptism. And then Jesus begins his ministry. After he goes through the temptation, he comes back. He's preaching and teaching and leading. People are starting to follow after him, so much so that he begins and his disciples begin baptizing people as well, and they're baptizing to say, hey, this is a new way for us to experience life with God, and it's founded in following Jesus, not in just the rituals and the rules of the past, but in in a person, and it's all about Jesus. And his following begins to grow quite a bit, so much so that John's disciples say, hey, uh, Jesus has got this baptism thing going on the other side of the, the valley here, and like people are starting to go over there. Like, what's the deal, John? And then John has this description that he gives in John chapter 3, and here's what he says. In John chapter 3, uh, this is where we get the, the famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. A little bit further on you read, and it goes to this idea, John replied, a person can receive only what he's been given from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, that I am not the Messiah, but I have sent ahead of him. And then he has this famous passage. Verse 30, he says this. He, speaking of Jesus, he must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. The one who comes from above is the one... um, is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one who is from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. And John has this realization that life is about making God the priority. And in our culture, much like the first century culture, so much of the language and the vernacular and the pull and the push of society is to make it about us being the main priority, right? In a customizable culture of everything, it's so easy to drift to making everything about me and everything about my priority, that my priority trumps yours. My priority trumps God's because I'm the one that's wrestling with the dreams and visions and the future of what I have to go for. And what John came to the realization was simply this. He is greater than I. He's greater than I. Maybe you've seen that bumper sticker. That's a company out of Hawaii that has this, it takes it from John 3.30 that says, He must increase, I must decrease. And it's living with this perception of saying, I want to live with this principle that to live a yielding life means God has to be the top priority that I'm going to submit all of the things that I have to navigate in life and I'm going to put it underneath his leadership. That the way I manage my energy is all about how he wants me to manage my energy because he deserves my best. And I want to give God leftovers. I want to bring him the best. And so the way I live my life, I'm going to pursue him and I'm going to let him kind of be in charge of that. That it's, it's saying to God, God... I'll ride shotgun, you take the driver's seat. And there's so much in our culture, listen, there's so much in your own heart and in my heart too, where I want to drive. I want to dictate where we end up. I want to be in charge of where we go, right? I don't know if you struggle with this. I do at times. And John is is kind of leaning into this principle. He's saying, no. To live a yielded life, to live as a person with a yielded heart means God's the top priority. He's greater than I. I am from the earth. I am not from above. He's the one from above, and He's above all. He's the one that deserves to take top priority, and and, and I need to be a person that that yields to Him. That there is a flow of how traffic, the way God wants life to go, that I need to yield into. It's a way of how I manage my resources. That I need to yield into how God wants me to use and and to utilize the resources that he's given me. That I need to yield in in how I live in relational connection with the people around me. How I live within my marriage. How I live within, if you have a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend. How you live in relationships with friendships. That God has a way of, at best, of how that's supposed to go. And it's not just me over here dictating, okay, God, I'm driving now, and you have to morph into what I want. Now it's saying, God, you got top priority and how you've laid out relationships to work best, I'm going to yield into that. I'm going to let you have top priority in my life. I'm going to choose that you become greater and I become less. That doesn't mean you have less value. You have all the value you will ever need before the creators of the heavens and the earth. Why? Because he sent his one and only son for you. Even if there was no one else, he sent him for you. You are highly valued to the creator of the heavens and the earth. And what he's saying is, would you yield your life to me? Would you let me lead you? Would you just follow along? And I promise you as you do, you will have the best possible life. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it's not going to have heartache. It just means that the creator of the heavens and the earth is walking with you and you get to walk in his shadow. And as he leads you through the ways that you have to navigate life, the ways that you get to use your talents and your resources and your contribution that you make into the planet and into you, into the navigating your story that he's helping write. And that's such a better place to live. There's so much more peace there. There's so much more joy there. There's so much more contentment there versus me having to be in the driver's seat, me trying to make everything happen, me trying to to, to manage all the, the different things around. And here's the reality. As we understand, especially when it comes to health, we have no control. We think we do. But we really don't, do we? If we're just honest about it and we get honest with ourselves, we realize it's much easier and much more pleasant to live underneath the control of the one who created everything and let him be in the in the driver's seat and to say, hey, God, I'm going to manage my relationships. I'm going to manage my resources. I'm going to manage my energy. I'm going to manage everything that you've blessed me with. The best possible way I know how, letting you be the top priority. A yielded life says God, it gives God top priority in life. The second part of that is a yielded life kind of says, I'm going to promote others above myself again we live in a culture that wants to promote everything about us right Uh, we live in a culture that wants to to make it all about us and we want people to notice and we want people to see and we want to have more likes and we want to have more hearts and we want to have more things that people notice we want to have more retweets we want to have all that kind of stuff and it's not wrong it's not bad but that pursuit can get you sideways really really fast And so a yielded life says, not only is God top priority, but I want to actually start promoting others. I want to actually start putting them above myself. I want to actually start noticing other people and not just making it all about me. I want to live and see what's fascinating about Jesus is that's, I think, what set him apart from every other rabbi of his day. In fact, you read through the the gospel accounts you begin to see that the Pharisees, they always sought out, the seats of honor. They always wanted that. They wanted people to notice them. Remember the parable Jesus tells of the guy who's who's praying, and it's, it's one of those who are is downcast, you know, labeled a sinner in the corner of the temple, and he's just saying, "God, woe is me? I'm broken." And then they have this Pharisee that's just going on and on and on. I don't know if you've ever been in like family prayers. Like before Thanksgiving dinner, and you have the one uncle who just prays forever, and you're like, the turkey's cold. Jesus just loves turkey. Let's eat. You know, it's just I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Listen, prayer is about connection. Okay, that's not about duration. It's about connection with you and your Creator. All right. Um, so it's okay just to pray a blessing over the turkey, and move on, eat it, enjoy it. Um, I think what set Jesus apart is that he was approachable. He was invested in other people. He noticed other people. He didn't always seek to be noticed. He actually took thought of other people. He listened and he loved. And I think that's actually what drew people to Jesus. They didn't have billboards. They didn't have Twitter campaigns. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Facebook, you know, launching, hey, Jesus, come to your town. They didn't have that. They had word of mouth. And here's what I know is true. Even in our century today, people that love well, other people talk about them. Because people crave that. They want people. They want people in their life that just know how to love well. But just know how to take thought of them. In fact, um, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, in, in, in speaking of, I think, Jesus' nature, Jesus' heart, as he came as a, this servant, um, with all the, the kingly rights that he gave up, he is still king, he is still God Almighty. But in a lot of ways he came, Isaiah describes him as the suffering servant. He came with this passion to invest in people, to pursue them, to know them, that they might understand that they could be known by the Creator of the heavens and the earth, that they might come into life with God through trusting in Him. And so he just always looked out for people. Uh, One of the most famous passages, Philippians chapter 2, and it talks about this. It's an early hymn, most scholars believe, that their early 1st, 2nd, 3rd century church would have sung that would have sung this in the, in the verses, looking right into where this hymn probably comes from, I just want you to notice something that uh, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. He says this, "...do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility..." Here's what true humility is. "...value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others." in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then it goes into this beautiful hymn that you can read later. It's a beautiful passage, one of the most brilliantly written ones, I think, in all the scriptures. But do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Look to honor others. Look to promote others. Keep God as a top priority. And then look to promote others around you. Look to say, um, how can you take thought of people? I think that's what it comes down to. How can you take thought? We are so quick to take thought of ourselves. We're so quick to be on a highway of life, and we're not trying to yield to anybody. We're just trying to go. And I'm trying to take thought of my stuff and my struggles and my decisions I've got to make and my stuff that I've got to handle, my to-do list I've got to get done. And it's so easy to make it about me, right? I think you can recognize that tension in your own life. And what Jesus modeled and what I think he pulls us to is to say, look, consider. Consider others. You know, we have some great leaders around here. You know, uh, Brian, our other uh, pastor, associate pastor here, um, man, I just, I admire him so much for just his passion to see teams work well. He is such a great team builder. This church would not happen without the skill sets and the abilities that Brian brings to this team. He is such, he is such an awesome guy. I, I hope you all get to know his heart. He just loves Jesus. He loves people. And he wants to see teams work well, that our church might be a healthy place. I love Michelle. You know, she is the director over our E Kids, and I wish you could know her as a mom. I texted her this morning, hey, happy Mother's Day. And just the way she loves on our kids, the way that she loves on our volunteers, and she's got a task to do, and it's hard to get everyone to be in the same place, in the right place at the right time, and to do everything that we can promote a safe place for our kids, and to love on them, to help them learn about Jesus. But she does it so well. She's so gifted in that. And she has a passion to know parents and a passion to love kids. And the way Lyle leads our team and our worship team and every single week, every Thursday, sometimes Wednesday if there's a basketball game, and, and they, they're over in a little rehearsal space at her office place, just jamming away to get ready for you, to prepare a space and a place for you to, to lean into who God is and to understand Him and to have your heart moved in not just words that we sing, but to understand who God is to know Him. And I love His heart. I love it. I think of our think tank team, which is kind of our core leadership team. and So many of them serve in so many different... There's so many arms of ministry to make a church like Elman City happen. It doesn't happen by just a a preaching dude. It doesn't happen with that. It takes so many other people making contributions. And we have such gifted people here. I'm honored to serve right alongside them. How you promote people. I just take thought of them. I think, I think in our culture, that might be one of the most difficult things to do. And I think with the more clout, the more leadership, the more wealth that you get, I think it becomes harder. So I think the challenge for us is to say, I want to live a yielded life. Maybe the bottom line is this. A yielded life to God leads us, is a life that is useful for God. That a yielded life to God leads us to a useful life for God. That He can use a yielded life. When we don't, when we try to merge and we just try to make everybody make it about us, I think that's an unuseful heart to God. It's not one that he can easily manipulate and use in a way, in a positive way, to make a contribution. So here's what I want to invite you to do. As we move into a space and a time to take communion, and we're going to end with a song here, I just want to invite you to kind of use this space and to use uh, this place right here, this, this moment that you have, to say, God, I want to live with a yielded heart to you. I want to keep you top priority. I want to learn to promote others around me. What does that look like? What does that look like for your Monday? What does that look like for your Tuesday? What does it look like for this week? Who's one person that you can help promote in your life? And it's not just bragging about them. It's taking thought of them. And it's making it known to them. See, Jesus did that for us. That's why he came on a mission to pursue us, to know us. That's why he went to a cross. That's why he rose again, that we might have life with God through him that He took thought of us. Do not have vain conceit in any way about Him. He gave up quite a bit to come down to pursue you, to pursue me. And so in communion, if we take that juice, we take that bread, we remember His body broken, His blood shed, for the forgiveness of my sins, forgiveness of yours, that we might have life with God, and that we learn to live in a similar rhythm of having a yielded life, that keeps God as a top priority and learns to promote others around us and invest in them. So, Father, I pray as we move into this moment here that you would stir our hearts, that you would show us maybe one person, one scenario, you'd show us one circumstance in life that we have not been making you the top priority. We've been taking the driver's seat. And maybe there's an area of life that we need to turn that over and say, okay, I'm going to ride shotgun now. You take the lead. And so in this space, in this place, would you stir us, Holy Spirit, to know what the next steps for us individually might be as we worship you in observing communion, as we worship you in song. Would you stir our hearts tonight? We pray that in Jesus' name.